You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good to be back again. Uh, last time I was here was the famous blizzard, you know, you... Uh, I came all the way from Kalispell through the blizzard, and you couldn't even get here from the ranch. I don't know what's, what's wrong with you. Of course, I grew up in Canada, eh? So uh, that makes all the difference. I know I'm not speaking American now, huh? That's how we do it now, so that's good. Uh, by the way, I, since I saw you last, I w- was in Nebraska teaching at Nebraska Christian College, and uh, when I was supposed to arrive there on a certain day, I ended up being stalled in Minneapolis, huge blizzard, and then got to uh, down to Omaha, Nebraska, to, and waited for an hour and a half on the tarmac to find a gate to get off the plane. And then when I got to the college, <laughs> they hadn't been able to plow anything out much yet. There's a single little lane to get into one little section. So to get to my room where I was to stay for the week, I had to throw my suitcase up over the snowdrift which was higher than I was, and, uh, and then I made my way through to the snow right up to the hips here, and uh, I thought, boy, uh, th- this is kind of bad. And if you watch the news, they've really had some problems in Omaha and uh, Iowa and different places like that. But uh, God's been good, and uh, spring has come, I think. I think. Don't hold on yet. The lake's pretty well still frozen over, so we're all ready. Now, we're, at our church, at the Family Life Christian Church, uh, they're going through the the book of Mark. And uh, basically what happened is that uh, our pastor, Frank, got sick and ended up in the hospital. And I get an emergency call, can I do chapter 10? And since it's the newest sermon I put together, I thought maybe I'd share it with you today, even though two weeks ago I had the privilege of doing that at Family Life. One of the things I want to talk about before we get it, we've got this funny word up here, paradoxes. That's not a pair of mallards, you know, in a blind somewhere. I just want you to, it's not a paradox, it's a paradox, okay? Uh, Jesus taught many ways. He was a master teacher. Our Lord and Savior had ways of talking to people. He'd share God's word with using a number of things, symbols. He'd do miracles. There was typology, that's Old Testament, referring to something that would happen in the New Covenant. He taught in parables. He taught in Proverbs. And in chapter 10, he talked in paradoxes. Uh, Somebody says, I don't even understand what paradox is. A paradox, according to the definition, is a statement that on first glance seems to contradict itself. I mean, what's being said doesn't sound right. It's kind of backwards, and yet it is so powerfully expresses a valid truth or principle. I'll give you an example of one in the Bible. When I am weak, then I'm made strong. That's a paradox. How how can you be strong when you're weak? That's found in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Well, I ran across something that I, I thought was pretty, pretty interesting on this subject of paradox. And it's about a judge in Los Angeles by the name of Yankovic. And uh, he had a case that I think would make a judge scream. This was really a difficult time. Um, the case went like this. I'm going to read it to you. Luther Wright and Herman Wrong. 
Right was spelled W-R-I-G-H-T. Wrong was spelled R-O-N-G-G. So you got right and wrong. And the judge has got to determine between right and wrong. Now, the words are different, you see. So they appeared before federal judge Yankovich, each claiming ownership of a patent. And the judge attempted to moderate this dispute, and these are the words he said. Well, one of you must be wrong. That's right, declared wrong. I'm wrong, and I'm right. Then right interrupted, he's wrong, your honor. I'm right, and wrong is wrong. And the judge couldn't quite make it out, so he responded, well, you both can't be right. After all, right is right, and wrong is wrong. But largely upon the strength of a letter that Wright wrote wrong, Judge Yankovich at length terminated the right-wrong dispute by ruling it this way. Paradoxical though it may appear, in this case, right is wrong and wrong is right, and so I enter my judgment. Now, I read that two or three times and I still don't fully understand it. But I have to kind of look at the words and the smelling and the whole thing and the rightness and the wrongness of things that happened there. Well, in spite of this confusion, I believe there are times when the best way to state a truth is by means of a paradox. And our chapter today tells us that. And actually what we're going to do today, you might want to get your Bibles or in a pew if you didn't bring one along, get Mark chapter 10 open. Now, you can follow along in all of these things we're going to share together. Because in Mark, there are five important lessons taught by Jesus using a paradox. Are you with me? Everybody set? Well, we got some work to do, so let's get at it, okay? Uh, I probably hit the wrong number, did I? Okay, maybe it's the other side. I'm hitting it wrong. There, it's, it's there but it's not moving, going forward. Am I hitting the wrong thing? Well, you're scaring me now. Well, we really need to get it up there, so how are we doing this? I, ah! Miracles do happen. Okay, okay, let's get to share together. The first one has this paradox of a phrase that says the two shall become one. Let's just stop and think about it. We're not knowing the story. Think about what that's about. It's all about the subject of divorce. In the NIV, it reads this way. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And again, crowds of people came to him. And as it was his custom, he taught them. And some Pharisees come by and they test him with this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is the subject of divorce coming up as they share together. Uh, what Jesus, what did Moses commanded you? And by the way, he's going back to the book of Deuteronomy to discuss that. We'll share that in just a moment. But look at the text. Well, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of a divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife. And I underlined the paradox. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, 
but one flesh. And that uh, uh, very, very powerful words there. Therefore, God has, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, when they're in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And that's where we want to stop and, and, and start thinking about that a little bit today. Jesus has been up in the north part of Israel. It's called Galilee. Sea of Galilee is up there, and it is actually one of the major areas. You've got Galilee up in this northern part. You've got Samaria just a little lower. Then you've got Judea down below. When it's time for him to leave that part, he's completed his ministry. He's been in Capernaum, the town of Jesus. I'll be leading a Holy Land tour this fall, uh, leaving in October. And one of the places we're going to visit is Capernaum. We'll get there by boat on the Sea of Galilee. be a wonderful reminder of how Jesus functioned. Now, he's on his way to Jerusalem. By the way, this is the area that was run and controlled by a man by the name of Herod Antipas, which may explain why the Pharisees are trying to trap him with a question about divorce. Because you remember, John the Baptist taught there. And he had been slain because he preached against the adulterous marriage of that king, King Herod. But there's more than politics involved here. Divorce was a very controversial problem in those early days, especially among the Jewish rabbis. No matter what answer Jesus would give them, it was bound to displease everybody. The word tested in verse 2 really has the idea that they kept testing him. They always did that with Jesus. They put out things for him to discuss. They were like testing him, hoping to incriminate Jesus in something you know, incriminating. In those days, by the way, there are two prevailing ideas about divorce. Depending upon how you interpret Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, it's referred to in our text in verse 4. There's a school called the Hillel School of the very lenient, liberal interpretation. Like, hey, honey, you burnt the food, I'm going to divorce you. That's pretty lenient. Hey, honey, you didn't make the bed right. I'm going to get rid of you. That kind of divorce. But there was another rabbinical school called Shammai that was very specific, much more strict, very conservative. Any sexual involvement was reason for divorce before marriage or after marriage. Well, Jesus comes along. He's asked this question. They're trying to test him. And he ignored the current debates and focused his attention instead on the Word of God. Right, that's a good lesson for us to learn this morning. Let's stop giving our opinions. Let's go to the Word of God and find out what it says. And that's exactly what Jesus did in Deuteronomy 24. And a couple of facts so that you understand this. It was the man who divorces the wife, not the other way around. You see, women at that time did not have that right in Israel. And the official bill of divorcement was given to the wife to declare her status and to assure any prospective husband that she was indeed free to marry. The only other requirement was that the woman would not return to her first husband if her second husband divorced her. 
And among the Jews, the question was not, may a divorced woman marry again? No, remarriage was permitted. And it was even expected because of what was the poor gal going to do? There was, this all, there was no social system. There was no, well, she had to beg every day. She can't get a husband, can't get a work, can't get a home. The big question is this. What are the legal grounds for a man to divorce his wife? Well, the law of Moses did not give adultery as grounds for divorce. For in Israel, the adulterer and the adulteress, the man and the woman, by law, were to be stoned to death. Boy, times have changed. Stoned to death. The uncleanness, Deuteronomy 24.1, could not have been adultery. Because if it was, that person, male or female, was to be stoned. So Jesus now explains to them why God gave this law. Well, Moses gave the divorce law because of the sinfulness of the human heart. There's this whole situation of the law was trying to protect the woman by restraining the husband from impulsively divorcing her and abusing her like an unwanted piece of furniture instead of treating her like a human being. And without this bill of divorcement, she could easily become a social outcast. No man would want to be seen with her or to marry her, and she would be left destitute and defenseless. So listen to this. By giving this commandment to Israel, God was not putting his approval on divorce. Don't give her mistake that. Don't, he didn't even encourage divorce. In fact, if you go to the book of Malachi, and you begin to read in Malachi chapter 2 16, it clearly says God hates divorce. We're living in a culture where when I was speaking to family life two weeks ago, over half of that church are people in it divorced. So it's rather bold to say, hey, wait a minute. God is not giving this idea that hey, that's an easy way for you to get rid of your problem instead of working on your marriage. God was seeking to restrain the method and make it more difficult for men to dismiss their wives. And so he put this regulation around divorce so that the wives would not be just the result of some husband's whim. So Jesus takes them back much further than Moses. He goes back to the original plan. In the beginning, it was God who said male and female created them, husband and wife. Marriage is God's plan, a man and a woman a sacred relationship, and the most intimate union of the human race. And the best way to say it is this very beautiful phrase, the two shall be one. One flesh, a physical union that God does not want broken by outside physical means. God wants married people to be committed to each other. And all of us, it doesn't matter what age we are, we need to think about this. God wants us committed, remaining true to each other, living up to the vows that we made before God when we got married, sticking by those through thick and thin, good and bad, 
That's what we said, you know, to tease or to tickle, you know, one of those options. No, it was more like to, in all of these kind of situations of life. And when he got together after, remember, they get in a house and they get talking. Remember, we read the text. They had a little private discussion with the disciples. His, he further heightens the seriousness of marriage and the tragedy of divorce. And I believe the disciples are beginning to understand the seriousness in which marriage needs to be taken. And in our culture today, we've fallen a far piece away from that. We got people on whims who just decide, you know, I don't know, we're, we're not happy anymore. Or we're not, she's not making enough money to help her. Or we've got all kinds of excuses. Divorce is never see, to be seen as the easy way out. So our first paradox is the two shall become one. And the real essence to me of that passage of scripture is that Jesus is saying the loose sexual immorality of the day has to be fixed, has to be mended. Those who seek marriage only for pleasure must remember that marriage is also for responsibility. It's a spiritual unity. It's a physical unity. And Jesus wants us to build a rampart around our homes so that we can protect and have a great family. Now hear me this. When that relationship breaks down, and sadly it does, in my own family, my father, the preacher, was divorced by my mother. So this is a touchy subject for Alan Dunbar, but it also should be for you. God wants us to have a relationship filled with love and understanding and commitment. It's called marriage. And all of the brokenhearted experiences that come, and one of them is divorce, maybe the biggest bad thing of all are areas in which we want to provide spiritual ministry. So as a church, there's people coming in who've been divorced. Hey, your job is not to criticize and put them down. Your job is to help them find Jesus and allow them to make a difference in their life. Because I want to tell you, churches today, and very few of them will make this statement, we have to be the group of people that lifts up the sanctity of marriage and a Christian home. The two shall become one. Don't you ever break that. Let's go to another one. Adults shall be as children. <laughs> this is an interesting one. The little children come to Jesus. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. Get away from here, you guys. Come on, I've just added that, okay? When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he says, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What a, what a passage. And what a, bless me. And it's, it says then, he took these kids. I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So he took the children in his arms, and he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. That's not as hard as it looks. Uh, we have a great-granddaughter now. 
She is the joy of our life. We get, and praise God that I live in a time with WhatsApp, you know, and all these kind of things. They send pictures and videos, and, and we get to talk to her. One of the priceless things, I, I should have put it up here for you. She was still very young, but she was playing a little game with her grandpa, our son. And they're got a, they've got the, her, his little phone sitting on the sofa, and they, she goes running toward the sofa. And we had been up there for a little while, so we got acquainted with our little great-granddaughter. And she was running back to her grandpa, and she turned and looked at that, and she saw me, because I'm watching from my end. We've got a video going. I'm watching from my end, and you know what she did? She stopped and turned around and ran over to the phone and kissed it. That's a moment I will never forget in my whole life, and I thought, boy, little children sure can get to you real fast. Well, first there's marriage. Let's get that straight also. Then children. Let's get it backwards, okay? Let's get this in the proper order. The sequence seems obvious to me, but unlike many in today's culture, children were looked on in the days of the Jewish people as a blessing and not a burden. Children are a rich treasure from God, and you are blessed with children in this church. If you want to read a couple of Psalms that really focus in on that, Psalm 127 and 128, mark that down. And read those verses about how important children were to them. Now, the custom was to bring the children to the rabbis for a blessing. So how in the world were these disciples getting upset about this when Jesus was considered to be a rabbi, a teacher? So it was very normal for them to bring the little children to Jesus. Little ones in the arms of the mothers. Little kids who just learned to walk. Jesus welcomed every one of them. The disciples, I guess, were trying to protect Jesus. You know, there were always these mobs following him. And at that moment, to them, children weren't that important. You need to listen to Jesus. <laughs> in fact, I think they had the phrase in that moment, to be seen and not heard. That's what children were for. They forgot that he'd just been teaching them back in uh, the ninth chapter about the importance of children. So Jesus is upset. Says he's indignant. He's openly rebuked his disciples. Why? Well, he's trying to say to them, well, do you realize that these children are much better examples of the kingdom than you grown-ups? That's a paraphrase I put in, okay? That's how I feel he's feeling. So he says, why don't you model yourselves, adults, and become like children? What a paradox. I mean, we've grown up. We're smarter. We've graduated from college. We've uh, Come on. No, you're missing it all, he says. The relationship isn't there. Look at children, so dependent on others, so receptive, so trusting, so able to live by faith, so happy, so outgoing. And exactly in our Sunday school lesson today, the men who came from World War II didn't say nothing. They didn't want to talk about such things. The children just wide open, book, loving every moment, and learning everything. And I think the lesson is this. 
We who enter the kingdom by faith need to do it like little children. Because, you see, we are helpless. We are unable to save ourselves. We're totally at the mercy and the grace of God. I don't care how old you are. But we enjoy God's kingdom by faith. What's the word? For God so loved the world. He loves us. He loves me. He cares for our daily needs. We pray in thanks at our table for his food and his blessing and the people around us. You're hurt as a child or you face a problem. Guess what? You go to mom and dad. One of the exciting things, I've been to Israel so many times and love it in the old city. There's always a family, a Jewish family walking. They got little kids. And little kid, you know, gets behind, gets maybe a block away, and he's lost his daddy. And you know what he says? It's right in the Bible. Abba! 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 Daddy! Daddy! Father! Father! Wow! What an example. God wants every one of us, whatever age we are, to be childlike. Not childish, childlike. And so he blessed them. And what a blessing that picture is. A scene we should never forget. Third one. <gasps> the first shall be last. Remember when you talked about that? Of all the people who came to the feet of Jesus... Here is this man, a rich man, called the rich and the kingdom of God. Let's read the story. And Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And why do you call me good, Jesus answered. Well, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit. Don't you not steal. Should you not bear false witness. You should not defraud or you honor your father and mother, the teacher. I've done all these things since I was a boy. <laughs> well, maybe he had. I don't know, but I doubt it. All the time. Oh, we know what we're supposed to do. <laughs> Jesus looked at him, and by the way, he loved him. So it says text. Hey, this is a great guy. He's got lots of potential. But it's like he loves all of us. He says, one thing you lack, son. You go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Uh, well, I guess I let, left you behind. I'm reading ahead of you here. Treasure in heaven. Uh, go back and everything and you'll have treasure. Then, follow, then come and follow me. I, that didn't sound to me to be the end of the world. But you see, he had a problem. It was called money. It's like our culture today. <laughs> it's all about stuff. It's all about things. So he says, come follow me. Get, do this and then come and follow me. And at that time, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now Jesus is using this moment to teach people. So he looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is 
for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed by those words. They thought it was Jesus came to make it easy. So Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to, it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. By the way, there is a little gate in the walls of Jerusalem to which camels can get through if they get down on their knees. And culturally, it's called the eye of the needle in the walls of Jerusalem. But it's very difficult, he says, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Yes, in our culture, that's why it's so very, very difficult. And the disciples were even more amazed. And when they said, uh, you know, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, well, man, that's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up and said, you know, we've left everything to follow you. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in an age to come, eternal life. That's the promises from God. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Had an interesting uh, experience with uh, flying. I've done a lot of flying in my life, and uh, I bought an airplane coming from Dallas back to Seattle. And I'm sitting on the, by the window, which is a nice place. In the very center one, believe it or not, was a pilot. He's, gonna, he's deadheading to Seattle. He's going to fly that plane back to Dallas. And we had a great discussion, found out he was a Christian. We had a great discussion together, and I kind of leaned against the wall. I going to have a little nap, and I smelled smoke. And I said to him, I smell smoke, don't you? And he said, you don't say that out loud. Scare the people. I smell smoke. He says, I don't smell any smoke. About 20 minutes later, the captain comes on. Folks, we're going to have to make an emergency landing. You know it was an emergency. You know where we landed? Yakima, Washington. That's an emergency, I'll tell you. And anyway, he goes, and, and I went, do you know what I did at that point? I said, see? I told the guy, you know. And he said, I can't believe it. I found out later, and it was really getting strong. He began now. So, you know they have a little hole in the window? Have you ever noticed that on an airplane? Down in the near the bottom, there's a little tiny hole. And that is so that it doesn't all fog up and it has a little heating system in there. And evidently, that has to be erased or so it lets air through there. And that's how I was smelling the smoke. And my Lord, we did the swoop-de-looping as well. We, we went down fast. My ears were killing me. I mean, we're... And, I couldn't believe what the pilot did. He wasn't as scared as we were because he, he went right up to the terminal. Let's take out the whole building. We all got off the plane, except it was interesting. It was one of those 727s with the stairway at the back. So he said, Dave, everything. I've already tucked my computer right down inside my shirt because you're not supposed to take anything. But my life's in there. You know what I mean? So I got all that in there, and I'm all ready to go. And I, it just struck me funny. Because <laughs> all the people who paid the big money 
are going to be last. Because all the ones who got cheap seats are going off first. Amen? And so I said to him, hey, reminds me of a scripture. <laughs> the first class shall be last. You know what he did? He got in there and told that to a reporter for the Yakima Herald. And on the front page that uh, next day was a picture of the plane. And two paragraphs down, on board was the president of Puget Sound College who had saw some humor in the event and gives the quote that the first class shall be last. <laughs> Isn't that what it says? But many who are first will be last. Certainly was for this rich young ruler, wasn't it? The whole experience was difficult. You see, he had a superficial view of life, a superficial view of sin. Here was a man of the Bible, Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, salvation. He could have listened. He could have had everything. He could have followed Jesus. But he was satisfied with the first grade edition instead of the real McCoy. You see, sin is a rebellion against a holy God. And it isn't just an accident. It's an inward attitude that exalts man and defies God. And what a superficial view of Jesus he had. You can call him good with all the flattering words. Oh, you're good. Hey, flattery doesn't cut it. His problem was covetousness. While he on the surface had everything, the truth was he had nothing. Especially when he turned his back on the one who could change it all. And then Peter comes up with this stupid remark. Look at what we've done to follow you. We've lost a lot of fishing business, you know. Oh. It says no one ever who follows me is going to lose. Really? I mean, he says you're going to have problems and difficulties and temptations and all those kind of things. The big bad word up there is persecution, but also eternal life. That's the best part of all, because that doesn't quit. No three score and ten, or by reason four score, this is forever. The good things that God has in mind. And you see, what God does is balances blessings with battles. Blessings are wonderful. Battles are terrible. But he's there through both of those. He'll always be with us. Don't miss this. To the general public, the rich young ruler stood first. And these yakety-yak fishermen stood last. God sees things from the perspective of eternity, friends. The first will be last. And the last will be first. Uh, Jesus does something in the middle of this, and then we'll just quickly move on. Uh, he predicts his death for a third time in the book of Mark. So I'm not going to get any paradox out of it. it, it it's kind of interesting. They're on their way to Jerusalem. That's what it says. Jesus is leading the way. And the disciples are astonished. 
while those who followed him were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they'll condemn him to death and we'll hand him over to the Gentiles and they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will die. And he will rise after three days of being dead. Very, very important truth. By the way, uh, I tried to strengthen that a little bit with this. I think we see a different picture at this moment in Jesus' life. In those other days, he's always got the crowd around him, you know, listening to people, going into homes, healing people, doing this kind of things. Jesus now is leaving the crowds behind. His pace of the road to Jerusalem quickens. He's now going to do what he came to earth to do. He's ready to accomplish his ministry. There is an inflexible kind of uh, purpose to his stride. The disciples are dismayed. If you read the text, they're a little bit afraid. They, they, they see Jesus heading away. There must be something horrible up ahead. And when he tells them again how horrible it's going to be, they see a dramatic change in the manner of Jesus. No longer is he walking with calm deliberation. He's marching like a soldier heading for battle. And he's saying, by his way he marched, let's get it on. The crucifixion is near. See, uh, that's an important thing for us to understand. Let's move to the fourth one. Servants shall be rulers. Tremendous moment in the situation. This idea of doing things. What's a real servant? What are they like? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come and say, Gee, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> nice prayer. That's how we pray sometimes. God, gimme, 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 gimme. Big Santa Claus in the sky. No, no, come on, listen. And Jesus says, he's going along with them here. Hey, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> I can see, life's going to get good here now. Everybody, well, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in the glory. Well, we'll be the two of the best of the 12, you know. We'll have the special spots. Jesus, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized? And you know what they said? <laughs> right on. <laughs> sure we can. <laughs> yeah. Jesus said, there's a little bit of a point to a way he said it, I believe. Oh, yeah. You will drink the cup that I drink. And you will be baptized with a baptism I'm baptized with. In other words, it's going to be tough, guys. But to sit at the right or the left, it's not for me to grant. These belong to those who, where they have been prepared. And when they heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and he said, you know that those who regard as rulers of the Jews lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you guys. Instead, whoever wants to become great. You know, the big money people, you know? Big mansions. Big yachts. 
must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. What a remarkable, remarkable experience for them to experience. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Could have put many pictures up there. One of the things you do as people in this town is model servant leadership. For Jesus, it meant a basin and a towel. How he would stop for the person who was in the deepest of trouble, lepers. He went and touched lepers. A woman touched the hem of his garment, and he, he noticed it, and he, he, he healed her. Just want you to understand, this servant leadership thing is not something to just toy with. A real servant is, well, he's trying to teach him the qualification for the rewards of service. The path to real greatness is service. One of the great moments of my life in two different places, I was members of a Rotary Club, which is a service club. And what Rotarians were able to accomplish was the annihilation of polio in the entire world. It took a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of money. But it was to serve others. Have we caught on to that as Christians? Are we doing that as we follow Jesus today? What a paradox. Last one. The poor become rich. Wonderful story here. A man by the name of uh, Bartimaeus. He's blind. He sits at the gate. Well, let's read it. They come to Jericho. Pretty soon they're going to head up, climbing up from the Jordan River at Jericho up to the city of Jerusalem. But here in Jericho, they, they're at the gates of the city. Jesus' disciples, together with a large crowd, are leaving town, heading up to Jerusalem. And a blind man, which means, by the way, son of Tamaris, he was sitting at the roadside begging I tell you, there's no social system. There's still beggars all over Israel. You go to mosques or you go to Jewish places, you'll see blind people, lame people begging. It's the way it is. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, this blind man, he's hearing the Bible, Jesus is coming, Jesus is leaving town. And so he's out, he, he shouts. Can I shout for you a little bit so you feel it? Hey! Hey, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That got his attention. And the people around, they rebuked him. That's what it says. Hey, Bartimaeus, shut up. Be quiet. They spoke French, ferme la bouche. Quit talking. And all the more, all the more, no, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, and he said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up on your, come on, on your feet. 
He's calling for you. I can't help but think about him. Jesus is tenderly calling today. Calling for you. Calling for me. Remarkable moment for this blind man. Jesus says, cheer up. Oh, I mean, the disciples said, cheer up. He's calling for you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. I don't know how these blind men get around, but they do. They didn't have white canes back then, but he found Jesus. And Jesus simply said, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see well, a lame man would say, I want to walk, right? A deaf man would say, I want to hear. This blind man wanted to see the poorest of the poor, beggar. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The poor man became rich. You catch that? The dead were brought back to life. They were poor. They were dead. Gone. The blind get to see. The lame get to walk. The deaf get to hear. The hopeless begin to find hope. The discouraged find confidence. And the losers find victory. That's the kind of servant we have, friends, who can take us poor sinners and get us ready for glory. Very interesting when we begin to think of it that way. Powerful lessons. Two shall become one. Come on, let's be a little more like children. Adults can be like children. That's how you're going to be a ruler. Uh, the first shall be last. The servants shall be rulers. I've got missed children in my thing. I apologize for that. And the poor become rich. This is an interesting chapter to have those paradoxes, isn't it? But it's about as personal as any passage of Scripture I know. Because I think he's talking about 2019. We're messing it up, gang. Let me give you the simple one right now. Go and make disciples of all the nations. How are we doing? Have you ever talked to anybody about Jesus, you Christians? other than your other Christian friends? I think the modern church has totally failed. Maybe we ought to look at the paradox of that. We get the blessing, but we don't share it. I, I'm amazed how Jesus taught. I mean, he, I think through his word, hopefully through his servant here today, Maybe there's someone here who needs to say, like by blind Bartimaeus, hey, have mercy on me. I need Jesus. 
That's what's missing in my life. I got it all backwards. I'm living on the wrong side of the paradox. So maybe this would be a great time to say, I've decided to follow Jesus. In fact, our musicians are going to come. We're ready to sing that song. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And that's what Jesus is teaching in this chapter. Let's get it right, gang. Let's let Jesus be the master of our lives so that we can be the kind of servant that he wants us to be. So if you're here today and you need Jesus Christ, why don't you come to the front and we'll talk about it and share with you, get you ready for things like getting baptized. And confess, your faith, confess your faith before others. That'd be good. Let other people know what you've done. I want Jesus in my life. Maybe for all of us today, this could be a real recommitment of life to the right things. To the thing that looks so strange to the world, a paradox. But it's so real when it comes to Jesus. Let's stand together and we'll pray.